You are tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Native Hawaiian and Campbell Estate heiress Abigail Kinoiki Kekalike Kavananakoa has died. Her passing was announced in Olelo Hawaii on the steps of Iwalani Palace this morning. Iwalani Palace Executive Director Paula Akana and Hailama Farden of Haleo Na'ali'i Hawaii delivered the news. Princess Abigail Kinoiki Kekaulike Kavana Nakoa. Kavana Nakoa was the great grandniece of Queen Liliu Okalani and the only child of Lydia Kavana Nakoa and William Ellerbrock. At six, she was legally adopted and raised by her grandmother, Abigail Campbell Kavana Nakoa. Educated in California, she also attended Punahou School and the University of Hawaii for a time. She was the heiress to the estate of her great-grandfather, James Campbell, the industrialist who turned tracts of Oahu's Eva District into sugarcane fields and became one of the largest landowners in Hawaii. Kavana Nakoa's $215 million fortune became the subject of a lengthy legal battle between her former attorney, Jim Wright, and Kavana Nakoa's wife, Veronica. Here's a clip from an interview that Kavana Nakoa did with the Honolulu Star Advertiser in 2019. The most difficult thing for me was in my position as an heiress of now the largest private estate, and now it's a corporation. But in that position, I have obligations to the Hawaiian people. I have a very big obligation. And to have my hot hands tied and, and be unable to exercise those two rights was very heartbreaking, was very bad. And for the people to, some of them not understand and not, um, and feel that I need, and Ali does not need help. They need the love and the trust. Because the elite must do the right thing. Because it's always for the people. In 2020, a judge ruled that Kavana Nakoa was too impaired to manage her property and affairs and placed her estate into a conservatorship and named First Hawaiian Bank as the trustee of her living trust. This past August, our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat reported that Kavana Nakoa was being cared for at Queens Medical Center for a time after falling at her home and becoming gravely ill. She had suffered a stroke in 2017, and her condition had become progressively fragile in the years since. Her family says services will be shared when they have been finalized. Kavana Nakoa was 96 years old.
It's round two for the Hawaii Tourism Authority before the Senate Money Committee today. It was two weeks ago that the Ways and Means members grilled Mike McCartney, the former director of the Department of Business, Economic and Development and Tourism, over the contract debacle. HPR reporter Casey Harlow joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, gosh, yes, it's been an eventful uh, last week, couple weeks, actually. Actually, it's an eventful month. The Hawaii Tourism Authority Board of Directors held a special meeting last Wednesday, hours before its uh, annual Hawaii Tourism Conference, to discuss uh, the RFP that would effectively be the brand and marketing for the continental U.S., Earlier that week, Mike McCartney, in his final hours, canceled the award, and obviously the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, who was awarded it in the second go-around, is still protesting that as well. But in the meantime, you know, the conference went to the conference. There was a little bit of a cloud on it, but it mainly was about the future of tourism, a lot about the sustainability, a lot about the uh, regenerative tourism, which has become the buzzword for tur- the tourism industry within the last few years. And not only that, but the kind of promotion of Native Hawaiian culture in a respectful manner as well. But obviously, Hours before that, there was the a special board meeting, and there wasn't a lot said uh, of the reasoning by Mr. McCartney. He basically brought out a library and said, this is the reason why, after each book, through kind of putting it on the table, this is the reason why I did this. He mentioned things such as, you know, furlough Fridays being, and um, HTA's uh, special budget being cut, uh, those were reasons why uh, he made the decision. But ultimately, he says, these things led up to one in one another over the last few years, and the boom that we saw in t- between 2015 and 2019, as you know, reasons why he did what he did, and he knew that there was going to be changes that needed to be made for tourism as well. And the the bottom line is that he got advice from the attorney general's office that uh, there may have been problems with the procurement process when they made those awards. Exactly. And, you know, he said he consulted with uh, the attorney general uh, and he cons- a lot of people consulted with the AG's office. Um, but ultimately, it was flawed from the jump, it seems like. And obviously, Kuhio Lewis testified uh, last week during the special board meeting. Uh, he acknowledged and commended the HTA for wanting to change directions. But ultimately, he says it's unlawful that, you know, you award something and then you take it back. And this is Mr. Lewis testifying in front of the special board meeting. Our request of HTA and our new administration is to undo the unlawful 11th hour decision of our award by the outgoing DFED director. The council of solicitation after an award, a state agency must determine if the award is in violation of the law. And we've heard today that wasn't the case. CHA, HBCB, HCA, and DBED entered into a mediation and landed on an agreement. And it's only proper that we return to the table to continue that discussion. A little bit tough to hear, but basically what he says, you know, is reiterating that the cancellation of the solicitation of the RFP was in violation of the law. And he, again, stressed that, you know, Mr. McCartney didn't, you know, give a good enough reason as far as why he did what he did. And CNHA, HVCB, which is the other party that has been contesting this as well, 
everybody reached and went into mediation and reached an agreement. And that agreement was splitting the contract into two for $20 million each. CNHA would be responsible for the destination management, the community efforts, and uh, HVCB would be responsible for the marketing as well. And this all puts HTA into a very tough position because there are contracts that need to be decided by the end of the year or else they get canceled or they expire. And the HTA board deferred action last week, putting everybody into a tough spot because we're entering the holidays and there's going to be a lot of people taking time off uh, because of this. And the state procurement officer office uh, administrator was there and said, we're going to try and get this done. The new DBED director was in, was present as well. And he understands, you know, everything that needs to happen because he uh, was with HTA for a really long time as well. And then HTA does have a regularly scheduled meeting. It's coming up is it next week. Yes, it's on the 22nd, but still that's it's kinda, cutting it close. It's cutting it real close. Right. And it remains to be seen whether Cujillo's claims that this was against uh, the law prevails uh, mm-hmm. in his threatened you know, legal action. Uh, but obviously, it's just it's been a mess. And uh, we'll see if we can uh, sort this out. But today's meeting, it's the Senate Ways and Means uh, Committee has called another session. Is it this afternoon? Uh, yes, it's at 2 p.m. They're getting everybody back into the room again, uh, CNHA. HTA, you know, we're going to see John DeFries there. We're going to see Kalani Ka'ana Ana. Uh, we're also going to see probably George Cam, who is the chair of the uh, board of directors. We're also going to see the SPO, the state procurement office. And yeah, everybody's going to be coming back in and we're going to see what happens. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Casey. Thanks. We've been talking to HBR's Casey Harlow about the uh, Hawaii Tourism Authority mess <laughs> with, the, with the contracts. Check out our coverage on hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We are just coming off the Honolulu Marathon, which celebrated its 50th anniversary yesterday. An estimated 27,000 runners participated with international athletes from Ethiopia taking the men's and women's title. Local runner Gabe Tom was the Kamaina champion, his second title. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we thought we would test your knowledge of the event and its history. The first Honolulu Marathon in 1973 had a total of 167 runners, and of those, 150 of them, 51 of them finished. Uh, compared to the 2013 marathon, which had a total of 31,579 participants and 22,000 finishers, the inaugural marathon was much smaller, but that didn't stop the runners from giving their uh, best effort. The fastest overall time for the 1973 race was a very respectable two hours and 27 minutes. It was achieved by a marathon runner who would later be known for competing in the 1976 Olympics. For today's quiz, 
We want to know if you can name the first winner of the Honolulu Marathon. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Lava output and gas emissions from Fisher 3 atop Mauna Loa continues, but at a greatly reduced output, according to the Hawaii County Civil Defense. The slowdown in the eruption uh, caused Hawaii County to cancel the media briefing this morning and prompted the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory to reduce the alert level from a warning to watch. While the Mauna Loa eruption doesn't uh, currently pose a threat to any homes or structures, it does serve as a reminder for Hawaii Island property owners to review their insurance coverage. During the 2018 Kilauea eruption, over 700 homes were lost or damaged after being overrun by lava and or, or catching fire. Several of those homeowners ended up taking their insurance companies to court after uh, those companies initially denied the claims. So, uh, Sam Thompson is the head of the Compliance and Enforcement Branch of the Hawaii Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs. He talked with the Conversations Russell Subiano recently about what homeowners should be doing to ensure they are covered in the event of, a, of lava inundation. What's the most important thing homeowners can do right now to make sure they're protected from a natural disaster like an eruption? Well, the thing they could do is make sure, understand their policy and that it's up to date. So it doesn't hurt to uh, meet with your agent periodically once a year, maybe every two years. You know, insurance is a lot like anything you own. You've got to just, you know, you don't open the hood of your car very often. You're going to maybe run into problems later. So same thing with insurance. You need to, you know, get the agent involved, talk to the agent about your situation. Things may have changed. Things may need to be updated. So contact your agent is, is very important or your insurance company. I feel like it's important to be familiar with your policy as well what it does cover, what it doesn't cover. And I know people's needs change over time. Is that also something they should be checking up on in the event of a future natural disaster? Yeah, it's really important to know what you have and what it does do for you and what it doesn't do for you. And if there are certain things you think it does, but it doesn't, your agent may be able to help you fill that gap with some other type of specialty policy or a policy that's catered to that certain risk or exposure that's out there. So it is, it is helpful to know what your deductible levels are a lot of times that'll be a dollar amount. Sometimes depending on the type of coverage, it might be a percent of your total dwelling amount, meaning like what the structure you're building, you're, you're insuring your home, what, what the dwelling is, might be a percent of that. So that can make a big difference on what you have out of pocket, what your out of pocket exposure is. What specifically should they be looking at or, or what specifically should they be reviewing? Yeah, you'd want to really make sure that the dwelling amount, like the structure, if you're talking about a homeowner's policy is correct. Like if, you know, is it being overinsured, is it being underinsured? Is it going to take, you know, 300000 to rebuild this? Maybe it did when I first bought the home. I thought it did. But over time, maybe I've added to the house, and now it's going to take 500000 to rebuild based on, you know, what I've done or changes I've made. So you need to know that. that a lot of your rate will key off of that dwelling coverage amount, how much you're insuring the dwelling for. That affects your rate quite a bit. As the cost of homes have gone up in recent years, I imagine values follow suit. And if your home 
is now more valuable than you're insured for. That's probably something to look for, right? Yeah, you want to make sure that you've got, you know, your coverage to where it needs to be to rebuild the home if something should happen. I mean, sure, you paid, you know, X amount of dollars for your home. That includes the structure itself and the land. So you take the land out of the equation, you know, there, you're, there's a lot less that you have to really take care of, which is your, what would it take to rebuild your structure? Or if there's a major loss and you know, there's major damage to the structure, get it back to where it was. So, so those are things you should look at, you know, inflation changes that you've made. Uh, maybe that maybe building codes have changed. You want to make sure your policy would would accommodate those types of extra expenses that might be involved. If a homeowner finds that they're not covered for something, or if they feel like they're paying too much, or feel like they are underinsured, what can they do? Is that something that they go specifically to their insurance agent about to remedy, or is there other recourse that they have? Yeah, I think the the main thing would be you'd want to start with your agent you know, go say, Hey, look, I got my renewal. You know, most of these policies are a one-year policy. It gives you a chance to kind of just take a second look at everything once a, at least once a year, it gives you a good reason to, you know, breach the project subject with your agent and say, Hey, I, I don't think my house is going to take this much to rebuild. Or I, I think maybe I've made some changes. I've made some upgrades or I'm a little worried about this coverage. It seems low. I've seen property prices go up. I see inflation going up. Can we just sit down and go over where we're at? And sometimes the agent will come out too and go do a field some field underwriting on the home, check out the home, check out the type of construction, make sure that's right. Is it, is it masonry? Is it frame or is it a combination? What type of roof do you have? How fresh is the roof? Maybe you've made major electrical upgrades. You know, all those things would could affect your rate quite a bit in a positive way or negative, depending on, <laughs> on how it was originally underwritten. So, After the 2018 Kilauea eruption, I know there were some homeowners who sued Lloyds of London after that company initially refused to cover damages. Do you know what the outcome might have been? Yeah, a lot of these companies did end up paying under, I think, under their fire coverage. Fire coverage is very broad. And again, you'd have to check in each individual would be somewhat different situation. So if it did exclude volcanic activity, you know, people that had maybe damage from bog that, you know, that ruined the wiring in the home, it's, you know, it was corrosive. Those types of things generally would, wouldn't be covered if the, if the volcanic activity is excluded. But fire coverage is generally quite broad. And so that's where it doesn't hurt to, to look at the policy closely. There was a lot of involvement with public adjusters as well that came in and people hired them to help kind of you know, push the claims and work the claims with the with the carriers. So the bottom line is insurance policy is a contract. So it obligates the insurance company to do certain things, certain criteria are met. It also obligates the homeowner, the insured to do certain things, you know, mix, you know, and so the, you got to look in there, see what your role is, what their role is. And, and if the policy does have specific language or language that might be a little bit ambiguous about something, then those are places you'd have to zero in on and try and get sorted out, ultimately in the courts if you know if it can't be worked out otherwise. But for the most part, a lot of those claims were paid if there was a fire loss involved with it. A lot of those claims were paid. And again, that other thing would be the market can change and be dynamic too. So maybe some of these policies are written a little tighter now, you know, in certain areas. And so those are all things that would be helpful to, to make sure you're up to date on what your current policy does and doesn't do and how tight the exclusions are. What can homeowners do if they do get pushback from their insurer about covering damage? Is there recourse through the state or ultimately do they have to go through the legal system? Yeah, generally if it involves a coverage issue and that's where the courts are, are involved and the courts step in. And there's a thing called the declaratory relief action that a, you know someone could file saying, hey, either party could bring it and say, look, we have this contract. We think it says this. You tell us 
what does it mean? Please, please sort this out for us, Mr. Judiciary, basically. But as far as like, if there's, if they need to have a clear denial and it needs to be based on policy language or based on, you know, some kind of maybe case law or something. And if the consumer's not getting that, that's where they would come to our office and say, hey, look, I put in a claim. I'm just not getting answers from my company or, or verbally the agent told me it's not covered. I mean, that's really not the agent's role. It's really the, the adjuster you know, the adjusting side of the company should be making those kind of claim decisions or coverage decisions. So that's where ours to be involved. They're not getting good, clear, distinct answers or stuff in writing, you know, because these are, these are important things and these, there needs to be some kind of position that the company takes. And that way the consumer has an option of having that reviewed, you know, by legal counsel or somebody saying, Hey, they're, they're saying my policy says this, what do you think? And then they could go from there, see what their, what options might be. Big picture. We're more about solvency. You know, our company's charging rates that are appropriate for the risks that they have. Will they will they be able to pay claims if a claim happens? Or are these rates maybe a little excessive for what the risk you know profile is of what they're covering? So try to keep the rates in line with what's out there. And if there is a claim, is the company responsive? You know, do they take the claim, do they address it timely? Do they pay it? Or if they can't pay it, do they explain why or what needs to be done? That, that's really the role of our office, make sure things are moving forward. Company stays solvent, charges rates appropriate. And that uh, if there is a claim that is addressed timely and, and handled timely, and, you know, the consumer is given clear options. We're out of hurricane season and the current eruptions on Hawaii Island aren't threatening any homes or structures. But we do live in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and we're currently in our rainy season. Is there anything you want to emphasize to our listeners about their insurance policy, about their homeowner's insurance or anything related to insurance? Yeah, I think the big picture is an insurance policy is really for large events that are going to be economically devastating to you that you can't absorb yourself. And so, you know, the guy might have a 30-year-old roof and it's got a few leaks. You know, is that really a maintenance issue or is that a, something that was, you know, damaged from a storm or damaged, you know, from something hitting the roof or something? So so it's important to make distinctions like that. You know, owning a property, it involves certain, you know, pride of ownership, maintaining it. A homeowner's policy is really designed for catastrophic events that are going to wipe you out financially. A fire, a big windstorm rips your roof off, your wind-driven rain hits the side of your house, comes up, goes down, you know, ruins a lot of or damages a lot of your property and your, and your and the structure itself. Those are things that insurance policies are designed for. You transfer that risk that you can't really handle onto the insurance company, and then they're able to spread that risk among a pool of insureds. And so if you're the unlucky guy that the stat falls on, well, that money goes to cover your loss. I couldn't absorb, you know, the $150,000 loss, either probably the rest of the guys in the pool, but we all chipped in a little bit. And if whoever the unlucky guy was, that went there, the money goes there to, to take care of it. And so insurance is really almost like a pass through. They take the risk on, they take the premiums in, and then it, it goes out to whoever, you know, unfortunately had the losses. You know, statistically, they know certain things are going to happen. Certain amount of houses are going to have fires. Once there's going to be some kind of large event, there's going to be a lot of roofs involved, those types of things. So that's where they can you know, kind of manage the risk and, and take a small premium, but then pass it off when there's, you know, someone needs that, that repair done or the, the money done, you know, if there's, if there's damage that's covered. Thanks so much for your time, Sam. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. That was DCCA's Sam Thompson talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Thompson was encouraging Big Island homers to review their insurance policies to make sure they are covered in the event there is a lava eruption.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Nohea Gallery at Kahala Mall with gift ideas from Hawaii's artists, including handcrafted jewelry, handmade pottery, original art, and custom prints. NoheaGallery.com. Queen's Medical Center is celebrating 10 years of organ transplants right here in Hawaii for our local residents and others throughout the Pacific Rim. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a member of the team about the process of giving and receiving a transplant organ. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care island-wide. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. Honolulu Sibelbine has a story today about the growing threat to our environment by non-native species. Reporter Cassie Ordonio has the story on today's Reality Check. Good morning, Cassie. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so your story talks about a noxious weeds list, which I never really gave much thought about, but it hasn't been updated in decades. Yeah, it hasn't been updated in 30 years, and I was just joking with my boss and my colleagues that the list is as old as me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us about this list, you know, what's on it? So this noxious weed list, um, it was adopted by the Board of Agriculture in 1992. And one of um, the species that's on the list is actually pampas grass, or at least one species of pampas grass. So any species that's on this list, it allows the Department of Agriculture to eradicate and also launch more control efforts. So any species that pose a threat to agriculture and the environment, it will be targeted. It's very different than the Department of Land and Natural Resources invasive species list because it works more as an advisory list. Well, so do we know why it hasn't been updated? It's just one of these things that, you know, no one's been paying attention to? It's one of these things that's actually very complicated and very bureaucratic. Um, In my story, uh, there was an effort in 2020 to look at the list, but because, um, like many other state departments, there is a lack of staffing. Um, Also, the COVID-19 pandemic has imposed a lot of um, restrictions and um, setbacks. But back to the... um, the legal the legal team, um, the Department of Land and Natural Resource, uh, not department, the Department of Agriculture has been trying to um, look for legal interns to help look at the Hawaii administrative rules in order to update the noxious weed list. So it just sounds like a lot of red tape, but what there's a fairly new administrator uh, for the plant industry division that's looking at this? Yeah, so Helmut Raj, the administrator for the Department of Agriculture's Plant Industry Division, he just came into this job last September, but he plans to pick up the pace uh, early next year and may come up with a draft uh, sometime in the summer. Uh, He was the one who told me that he's looking at um, legal interns to help with the noxious weed list, but it also requires a study and evaluation of these uh, potential plant species that may need to be added to the list or to be removed from the list. Well, I guess sometimes it you know, you need a set of fresh eyes 
uh, to figure out, you know, what needs to be done, uh, you know, and I, we're all waiting to, to see who takes over as the new uh, director of uh, agriculture. Um, but, yeah, so it sounds like at least we're moving forward and someone realizes that uh, we need to take care of this. Most definitely. And also the invasive species committees on the counties, they've been taking matters into their own hands. They're in the front lines trying to eradicate some of these um, invasive species like pampas grass, for example. One species of pampas grass is on the noxious weed list while the other isn't. So it kind of poses uh, more of a challenge to get that other species of pampas grass to be removed. Like, for example, homeowners who have pampas grass growing in the front of their yards, it's kind of harder for the invasive species committees to ask them to remove it because their excuse is, well, it's not on the noxious weed list, so therefore mm. we don't have to remove it. Right. So <laughs> I guess the first step is getting it on that list. Most definitely, but it's more of a wait and see, and um, you know we do have a new administration, so um, I'll be taking a closer look on what's going to happen next year on this noxious weed list. Yeah, I mean, there's so many threats to agriculture, right? I mean, you've got uh, pests that are threatening the uh, the grazing land, you know, for our cattle industry. You've got, uh, you know, myconia. You've got so many things that affect everything, you know, Malka to Mackay. Yeah, and I keep referring back to pampas grass because originally the story was supposed to be up about pampas grass, but it kind of opened. Uh, it kind of opened more about the noxious weedless. But pampas grass, for example, now that we were talking about cattle, it's actually mm-hmm. um, a threat to ranchers because pampas grass is toxic to cattle. So a lot of ranchers have had um, livestock that um, died for consuming pampas grass. Oh, well, that's not good, you know. But there are all these things that seem to come into our state that we learn about. You know, I didn't know there was something called devil weed um, that's bad, too. So lots of um, uh, kind of negative things that are in our environment that we need to uh, do more to, to prevent from spreading. No, most definitely. I was just joking um, with some of my colleagues. If you want to get rid of invasive species, give them to me because apparently I keep killing all of my houseplants. (laughs) All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Cassie. (laughs) Appreciate your story. Thank you so much. That was reporter Cassie Ardonia with today's Reality Check. Uh, Check out their coverage on civilbeat.org. It's time for your Backyard Quiz answer. We put the spotlight on the Honolulu Marathon, which celebrated its golden anniversary yesterday, with an estimated 27,000 runners braving blustery conditions in the 26.2-mile race and other events. You know, the marathon has become a, it's come a long way since its humble beginnings. Did you know that the first Honolulu Marathon in 1973 only had 167 runners participating, and of those, only 151 of them finished? Compared to the 2013 marathon, uh, which had uh, more than 31,000 participants and 22,000 finishers, the inaugural marathon was much smaller, but didn't stop the runners uh, from giving it their best effort. The fastest overall time for that race was a respectable two hours, 27 minutes, which was achieved by marathon runner Duncan McDonald, who would make a name for himself later uh, in time by competing in the 1976 Olympics. 
Uh, after winning the inaugural Honolulu Marathon, McDonald followed up with two more first-place finishes in 1974 and 1980. And congrats to Alice from Honolulu. You are our winner today. And that's the quiz for today. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Hakuone, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Learn more about OHA's plans at a December 14th virtual town hall. Registration at hakuone.com. Aloha, this is Bill Dorman, Vice President and News Director at HPR. Thank you for supporting HPR in our end of year membership campaign. We received more than $117,000 from 380 members across the islands and around the world. HPR also welcomed 108 new members to our Ohana. Our community coming together will keep HPR going strong in 2023 and beyond. Mahalo for your support. Support for HPR comes from Waikoloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at WaikoloaBeachResort.com. Greg Asner and Robin Martin are two conservation scientists who have been working on the Big Island for more than three decades. Their work using satellite technology to map the health of reefs is through the Arizona State University and in collaboration with the state of Hawaii. Their nonprofit, Hawaii Marine Education Center, was honored with the Marine Sustainability Award at the Big Island's recent sustainability conference. Uh, they were glad to extend their reach with their scientific work. But this month, that reach is even going to get broader as a PBS film hits the airwaves. The couple was selected to be the voice of science in a documentary exploring Pope Francis's message about our climate crisis. It's entitled, The Letter, A Message for Our Earth. The Pope invited participants to speak on behalf of four groups, the poor, the indigenous, youth, and nature. We talked to Asner and Martin, the husband and wife scientific team, about getting approached to take part in the film by the director before the pandemic hit. I have a leap of faith to jump in on this, but he said, we're looking for representatives, someone to represent the voice of wildlife and biodiversity, which turned out to be Robin and me, someone to represent the voice of the poor, the voice of indigenous peoples, and the voice of the youth. So those are three other individuals. So it ends up being five of us in the movie Robin and I share the role of Voice of Wildlife, which was great because we got to do something together. Wow, but what an honor to be the voices in what looks like a very powerful film. Yeah, Robin, jump in. I'm not in front of her right now, so she'll have to jump in. With okay. The, uh, the opportunity was something that I personally didn't want to pass up, and then when I talked to Robin, we decided as a couple it would be a great idea both to do a project together like this and also to represent the issues that humanity is facing with respect to the environment in general, but also biodiversity. And it was great because the movie really put emphasis on Hawaii as kind of an iconic example of the challenges. And so the movie crew, the filming, they came here several times 
land, air, and sea, we did a lot of filming. A lot of it didn't make it in the movie, but the experience was amazing. And and then, you know, to then go to Rome and join the other voices, that was a whole nother layer of experience in the process. So when did they first start filming here in the islands? January just before 2020. COVID and, yeah. Oh, just before COVID. Okay. Okay. Well, I know... I've talked with Greg before, you know, about the research projects that you folks are working on with the, uh, you know, the satellite mapping and our reefs. But I don't know, Robin, I mean, you want to talk about, you know, just the experience, what it was that you felt when you were invited to go to Rome and, and meet the Pope? Yeah. Meeting the Pope and having read the Laudato Sea, which I hadn't heard of before, but it's an incredible letter to the whole world and all of the people here and humanity in general and a cry for help, but also hopeful. You'll notice in the movies, we don't give any answers. It's just about the world itself and what's happening here and with hope that everybody can come together and help the earth heal itself. The other people that were tapped to represent the voices, was this the first time that you were able to meet them in Rome? Yeah, we hadn't met anybody prior. And as Greg said, there were multiple different stories originally, and then it settled down onto the, the five of us. Yeah, meeting them and hearing their experiences and stories just was a really powerful experience. And Greg, when we last talked with you, you were doing some amazing work, you know, with the mapping to help protect our coral reefs. Where are we at in this whole process? So my team works closely with the state of Hawaii and federal government and, and communities to not just understand where the reefs are doing well, where they're doing poorly, but the work that we are doing has evolved to planning and executing interventions that will improve conditions on our reefs throughout the state of Hawaii. And that has a lot to do with coral reef restoration, land-based reformation, trying to get some of the pollution under control that's coming off land. We often talk about climate change, and certainly we've seen some serious climate impacts on our reefs, but our land-based problems are, are actually turning out to be bigger so far than the climate-driven problems. So really working land to sea, Malcolm Mackay, and working with a range of actors. When you work land to sea, you cannot just be a marine biologist. That's pretty much on the receiving end of the problem. You gotta work with land decision-making. That tends to be state and county and private land owners and land holders. And so it creates a reef program that is really a collaboration. And then none of that gets done without direct engagement with communities along lines here. So it's a busy, busy space. We're pretty much working seven days a week trying to make progress. And you ask me, what's the status? There are areas where our reefs are doing very well, and there are really big areas where they have continued to decline. And so the challenge is to take the places that are doing well, protect those, and learn from those areas, and then work on restoring the areas that have declined based on the knowledge that we gain from the good areas. So 
we see it all here in Hawaii, across all eight main islands, and we're, we're trying to use the geography of this incredible place to learn the lessons and then apply them across the entire state. And have there been challenges with the technology? Sure. Technology is both challenging, but we also recognize that it's not the solution. The solution really rests in using the technology to inform and to monitor progress. It's really about people. So we're focused in both worlds, but the technology has been challenging. You bet. We're just at the point now where we are routinely, and I use that word carefully, not a research challenge so much anymore, but more of a routine operation just to understand where are the live corals? How well are they doing? Are there more or less in this area or that area? So the technology has just made those breakthroughs, and that's why we're able to turn towards communities, turn towards the harder part of this, which is all of us working together to improve these conditions for corals and coral reefs. And Robin, you know, the work that you folks have been doing out here for, what, 30, almost 40 years, I mean, when you come across areas where you actually see the loss of the reef as you do your work out there, I mean, you know, what's that been like? To see the loss is pretty devastating, but to know now that there are pathways to solutions is very hopeful. And as Greg was saying, you know, technology is not going to get us there. It takes the communities. And so that is also our other hat. Aside from being scientists, we have a nonprofit that is positioned precisely to be the interface between science and communities. And help communications and help both sides help each other. And so that's been really rewarding. And can you name, I guess, a few places where you've seen that happen here in a way? Most recently and extensively in the community of Mililii, they just got their community-based fisheries management area passed. And that was, now it's actually in law and it's uh, 18.6 miles of the coastline is now under community-based protection and management. It's the first of its kind in Hawaii of such a large extent. So it's really going to be something to watch and keep an eye on. And the process is the state believes that it is the first of many that they want to put forward. So very exciting. Greg, anything else you want to add just about the contribution that you think you folks are making, not just to all of us here in the islands here in Hawaii, but really across the globe? I mean, after coming through this experience, you know, I mean, this film is uniting, you know, so many people. Yeah, thanks for the question and the opportunity. You know, when we decided to do this, there were two, you know, conservation scientists entering into a group that all the members come from quite different backgrounds the poor, the youth, indigenous knowledge, and then this wildlife science that we represent. And people ask us, why did you ultimately do it? And it really has to do with being comfortable enough as scientists to go beyond the question of what and how. You know, as scientists, we often say, what is wrong? And how do we fix it? Or we, you know, we, we use terms like that. This movie is about the why. Why should we care so much about this. And I don't want to give the whole movie away, but I think the movie really faces the question of why this is so important. And I think when you talk to people about the why, science then doesn't become a barrier. And these other voices are given more of an even playing field with science and 
and and sort of the facts and figures of all of this. And it helps people engage, I think, a little more from the heart and the soul and the mind. And, you know, as a scientist, people thought, I think some of my friends thought that we were taking a pretty big risk. And I think it's worth taking the risk, whether you're a scientist or not. So I think that's part of the answer. One other part of it is in Hawaii itself. I've been working in Hawaii on natural resource management, conservation science for, like you said, more than three decades. And this idea that the government is in one posture and the communities are in another and the science community is often in yet a third kind of posture about how and what we should do. The why has got to come first and then that will get people to work together. And Robin mentioned our nonprofit, that's really about the why and then, then we sort of inject the how and what back into it. And I think those are not all the answers, but we're experimenting in, on the big island and we're we're connected across the islands all the way to Kauai, and I think that there's a brighter future if, if we keep going down this path of, of breaking these barriers, reducing these silos, and getting people to really work for one another for this future that we all know we want. We don't know how to get there yet, but we know some of it, and so it's going to take more and more and more investment by people in the communities around us to get there. And Robin, you know, when Greg came home and said, hey, you know, we've been asked to, to take part in this project. Did you feel the incredible pressure, you know, because you were really one of just a handful of voices? Definitely, yes. It was not at all taken lightly, and it comes with the sort of hole in your stomach scared, but also at the same time just an incredible, incredible invitation to be, not only meet the Pope, but be a part of a whole movement that is about expressing this message. I'd just like to say that I'm really proud that we got this chance. Hawaii has a major voice in this movie, both as the icon that it is and the challenges we all face as an island state and island community. And that really, I hope that Hawaii will take a look at this movie. We're speaking globally. We're looking outward in this movie to all peoples, not just Catholics, but all people. Pope really, really was careful to make sure that this was outward looking. But Hawaii is front and center, especially from the wildlife and biodiversity and environment portion of the movie. So I hope people will take a look at it and, and get a feel for the message that the Pope is carrying and that the cast carried and that the movie is really trying to portray. That was Greg Asner and Robin Martin, who are featured in the upcoming PBS film, the Letter, A Message for Our Earth. It airs with subtitles on December uh, 21st, which is next week, Wednesday, and we're going to leave you with part of the trailer. Well, the Vatican releases Pope Francis' is wildly anticipated encyclical on the environment. La naturaleza grita. É permeter a terra, a floresta, o grande agronegócio que está chegando aí. Marine heat waves are causing an unknown amount of death among corals. I want all the global leaders to do something to stop climate change because if it's not going to be stopped, it's going to harm our future. Queridos poetas sociales, porque ustedes son poetas sociales porque tienen la capacidad y el coraje de crear esperanza allí donde solo aparece descarte y exclusión. Yo me riparo si es tranquilo, por favor. 
Jane explicou essa. O mundo vai mudar. Porque o que estava encoberto, hoje está sendo descoberto. Ele foi lícia de ele entrar fora. E ele não foi jamais romper o gelinho. Não, mas eu não Que nenhuma de nós é uníssora. Amam todos os sonhos nenhuma de diário. Onde é mais? Por exemplo, eu vou proteger o environmento. Try to be the change you want to see in the world. We arrive as individuals with very different stories, but we all shared a dream. does it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear from a Hawaii Island hiker familiar with the slopes of Mauna Loa. He shares a story of the things that he's found on the mountain. Have a volcano story to share? Call our Talkback line at 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And a reminder, you can find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the Conversation. <music>